0: But it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all breathtaking hikes, kid friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at travelwyoming.com. I live by routines, especially my same day delivery routine with shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com.
1: On an unpleasant day in February, I was standing in front of my apartment. Ooh, barely. Almost just fell. Which is located right on the edge of downtown Concord. Capital of New Hampshire. And we were supposed to get a couple inches of snow tonight, but um we got rain. Lots of rain. It's freezing. It's gross. And all the snow that we have is melting, making its way down here. This is the sound of a storm drain, an honest to goodness river running right under my feet. And above me are the first and smallest tributaries in this unlikely ecosystem, gutters. The very phrase, get your mind out of the gutter, assumes it is a filthy place hardly worthy of serious inquiry. And if you do get your mind out of the gutter and stick your nose there instead, you can also smell, it smells a little bit like rotten eggs. That eggy smell, that's hydrogen sulfide, a toxic, inflammable gas that might be produced by sulfur-reducing bacteria a category of organism known for surviving in extreme environments with little to no oxygen. Thermal vents, acidic and volcanic hot springs, or, you know, pipes, hot water heaters, and storm drains.
2: They're extreme environments. They, they are um, places where there's opportunity, but there's also a lot of challenges and risks that urban life has to deal with. And the gutter is probably a, a very good example of that.
1: This is Outside In. I'm Taylor Quimby, in for Sam Evans-Brown. Today, we've got a bonus episode from our series 10 by 10 where we take a close look at unusual or overlooked ecosystems. This special episode was sponsored and selected by our lovely donors, thank you very much, who chose between four options and ultimately decided to send us sifting through city gutters.
3: I can't actually think of the last time anybody asked me about gutters, to be honest, so... <laughs>
1: Gutters, I've discovered, can refer to the curbside drainage channels that lead into storm drains, or to the metal or plastic troughs that line some rooftops, or really any low area designed to move water from one place to another. And since we did not specify which ones we were going to be talking about in this episode, we're going to cover both of those first two kinds. Starting curbside and working our way up, we're going to find out which creatures take advantage of our wastewater systems.
4: They go into the gutters because the gutter is like a feeding trough.
1: Find evidence of extraterrestrial travel in the most mundane of places.
4: So these are rocks from outer space, just like
5: their larger cousins.
1: And we'll look at how gutters function or don't function for the very species that design them.
6: The challenge is is being able to have systems that, you know, function the way that they should for everybody.
7: lived downtown in downtown Baltimore growing up. And um, we had these nice front porches for the row houses. And all of a sudden, we'd see an opossum. And we figured, how did that thing get here? And it's because they use the storm drains to get from here to there. Coyotes do the same thing. I would go into storm drains and I would find uh, scat from raccoons. Hopefully they're smart enough to get the hell out when they start hearing rumblings of flow.
1: This is Ken Belt, a retired engineer and ecologist who worked for two decades in Baltimore's Department of Public Works. If you look at a detailed geographic map of streams and rivers, you might notice it looks a little like a roadmap. And in a way, they are. That's because rivers aren't just homes for aquatic ecosystems, they're highways for all sorts of animal life. Human engineered water systems, made up of culverts and sewers and pipes, function kind of in the same way. Ken says that gutters and storm drains aren't just like streams, they are streams, intermittent headwaters that can change suddenly from dry bed to raging river and back again in a matter of minutes.
7: It's different, but it's the same.
1: On a riverbank, you have what's called the riparian zone, where water meets dry land, and lots of water-loving trees and plants grow in abundance, which drop their leaves into the water.
7: There's a lot of litter fall, and that forms the basis for the food web.
1: In a healthy stream, Ken says, decomposing leaves attract communities of bacteria that break them down and form colonies of slimy biofilm. Those bacteria are eaten by the next step up the food chain — bugs, some of which Ken calls shredders.
7: A shredder would tear them apart and eat the microbial biofilm.
1: Like stonefly and caddisfly larvae. They
7: literally build nets in the stream, and the nets catch those particles.
1: Collectively, this food web prevents the carbon in the leaves from turning back into a gas and re-entering the atmosphere, instead locking it up in a Russian nesting doll of itty-bitty bug bodies. But urban streams, like our gutters, Ken says, are battling tough conditions. With street sweepers removing leaves, there's little food to break down in the gutter. And the sudden rapid currents you get during big storms make it impossible for insects like stoneflies to hang on without being washed away. Until engineers build places for leaves and insects to collect somewhere in our storm drains, you won't see the fully formed food webs you do in the natural world. That being said, where you do see a thriving gutter food web, Ken says, is under the microscope.
7: There's a lot of um, microbiology in storm drains and in gutters. In
1: 2015, a team of researchers took to the streets of Paris to look for life in the gutters. They split up among the city's 20 districts, armed with equipment for collecting water and toothbrushes for scraping up biofilms, microbial cities that form carpets in and around the gutters. What they found was 5,782 different OTUs, or Operational Taxonomic Units, Unique genetic samples that operate something like a loose surrogate for species. That's nearly 6,000 different kinds of microbes. Algae, photosynthesizing sunlight streaming into the city streets. Bacteria, there is a tiny freshwater species of sponge. Fungi, a species of mollusk. Multi-celled microbes called alveolates. The gutters of Paris and other cities are home to an invisible biome. A complex ecosystem and food web all their own. One that may be functioning a little bit like the one in wild streams. Cleaning and filtering water, removing carbon from the air, and producing oxygen. Maybe even pooping precious metals.
8: So, uh, hi, nice to meet you. I'm, I'm Carlos Galler.
1: Carlos Galler is a microbiologist at North Carolina State University and an assistant professor who likes to search for microbes in unlikely places.
8: I find it really fascinating that you have some microbes that are able to stick to the drain of a kitchen sink.
1: He sent students out looking for microbes in water fountains, in rooftop gutters. Shady
8: versus sunny gutters. They had different microbial populations.
1: But there's one microbe that Carlos turns to more than others. It's called Delftia acidavarans.
8: His colleagues have joked. Of the millions of microbes out there, Carlos is interested in the one that usually does not cause disease, but does this weird thing. It has this unique ability of, when exposed to liquid gold, the ability to make a little protein that takes liquid gold and basically clumps it together into gold nanoparticles. And I always describe it as a gold-pooping microbe.
1: Delftia has been found in lots of places, like common garden soil or the very uncommon water filter on the International Space Station. And no surprise, Carlos's students have found it in the downspouts of North Carolina State University's campus gutter systems.
8: Confirmation bias, right? <laughs> we, we, have, we said go search for Delftia in downspouts, and they found it in downspouts and soil. But now,
1: before it. you go ahead and start trying to test your gutters for Delftia, This is not a feasible get-rich-quick scheme. These nano-nuggets do not add up to much.
8: We're talking tiny, yes.
1: Measuring in length around 20 to 80 billionths of a meter, nanoparticles of gold are so tiny they don't yet behave like metal. They exhibit different shapes, different colors, different properties. So Delftia won't be replacing the gold in your wedding band anytime soon. But they are a great way to get your microbiology students excited about the world around them.
8: It's a really excellent way of looking at the maybe understudied microbes that we label as ubiquitous and just around there that are doing fantastic things for us that we don't even know about.
1: Delftia aside, the microbial life in city gutters isn't simply a novelty. Science writer Fiona McMillan, in her article about the Parisian gutter study, points out that gutters line 6,000 miles of New York City's roads. That's one quarter of the circumference of the Earth. With a sprawling ecosystem that large, it's no wonder organisms aren't merely taking advantage. They're evolving.
2: So probably there's very high levels of lead and zinc Um And we we know from other organisms in in urban environments, plants, for example, but also pigeons, city pigeons, that they adapt to these high levels of heavy metals that are around in cities. And probably the same applies to the life that lives in these gutters.
1: This is Menno Schildshausen, an evolutionary biologist, ecologist, and author of Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. So if you're a bird or a squirrel, I mean, why even attempt life in the city? Why bother risking high levels of heavy metals or getting run over by an Uber? Well, the same reason any species prefers one habitat to another. More food, fewer predators, or better shelter. Cliff swallows, for example, traditionally like to build their cute little mud nests on vertical cliff faces.
2: And then when humans started building cities, we basically created an artificial rocky environment that was perfectly suited for these for these cliff nesting birds. At some point, they quite drastically shifted to building them on, on concrete flyovers uh, along highways. So they've um, at some point discovered that that those flyovers offer a better substrate to attach their nests to. And that, and that behavior was passed on somehow. I'm not sure if there's evolution involved there. It could simply be learning and, and culture that uh, takes off.
1: Cliff swallows and other birds have also been known to occasionally build nests along or underneath gutters. But again, whatever advantages urban nests offer, there are always trade-offs. The bizarre, non-sentient predators of the Anthropocene
2: they're also exposed to much more traffic deaths than uh, the original population of cliff swallows was. And the result is that over about 30-35 years, these cliff swallows l- nesting there have evolved shorter, broader wings, which probably is a result of this constant natural selection by, by oncoming traffic.
1: That is wild. That is, so str- that is just wild.
2: And also very artificial at the same time, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Top gutters, like the ones that line our curbs, are also extreme environments, prone to bake in the sun on a hot summer day or flush with water when it rains. But that's only when they're working. When gutters break or get clogged, those extremes can kind of flatten out, and that can have a domino effect.
4: Typical day for me would be squirrels, raccoons, flying squirrels, uh, roof rats. Uh, possums, snakes, birds, just about anything. The unusual can go into bobcats, um, alligator we've done, black bear,
1: This is Doug Hartman, 34-year owner of Covenant Wildlife Management, based in Birmingham, Alabama. Throughout his career, he has seen it all. And while not all the critters he mentioned can fit into the gutter, he says it's the small mammals especially who use them as highways.
4: They go into the gutters because the gutter's like a feeding trough. You know, it's collecting any nuts and seeds that have fallen off the roof and collected in the gutter. And then you've got low spots in the gutters that are, are holding water. So a, a squirrel or a rat can can get into those gutters, and then they find that opening getting into the soffit, and then they're into the soffit. They've got nice insulation that they can use to make a mess. They stay warm. They stay dry. And all they got to do is go right out on their front porch, and they've got food and water for them.
1: Doug says the more neglected the gutters, and he guesses that maybe 50 to 60 percent of the ones he sees are not well maintained, the more wild they become. Once you've got nuts and leaves clogging your gutter, it's only a matter of time before...
4: You'll, you'll see pine trees growing out of gutters, oak trees. They've got caught in leaf matter that has decomposed, so it's got a great compost that it's growing in. You know, I've, I've seen trees probably, oh, I don't know, an inch in diameter and eight feet tall, growing out of gutters at times.
1: And the dominoes continue to fall. Once you've got plants and mammals, next comes predators, like snakes.
4: So I've watched them crawl right up the side of a brick house and and over a gutter and into the attic. And then I I get into the attic and they're up on a louver vent, you know, chowing down on bats or, or something like that.
1: is a spring or a vernal pool or an aluminum gutter. Wherever water flows or collects, it attracts life. But what about taller buildings? Skyscrapers and high-rises with roofs too high for leaves or nuts to collect. Gutters that fill with nothing but rain and dust and starlight. That's coming up after a break. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Taylor Quimby, in for Sam Evans-Brown. A gutter is a product, and a receptacle, if you will, of its surroundings. It fills up with anything and everything that can fall or climb into it. Water, acorns, leaves. But story by story, as we ascend from the curb and up to the world of mid- and high-rise buildings, there are fewer and fewer things liable to clog up the gutters. And by the time we reach the skyscrapers... Just about all that's left is rain and snow, bird poo, and wayward particles of pollution carried on the wind. And one more thing. Space dust. Technically called micrometeorites.
5: So these are rocks from outer space, just like their larger cousins. But in this case, they are dust particles.
1: This is Matthew Genge, planetary scientist at Imperial College in London. Micrometeorites are exactly what they sound like. Miniature space rocks, just two or 300 microns across. A little bit smaller than the width of a human hair.
5: Um, Some micrometeorites melt as they come through the atmosphere because of the friction with the air as they they come through. They they air into our atmosphere at such high speeds and they form tiny little droplets.
1: I cannot emphasize this enough. They are beautiful to behold. Blown up, these melted space rocks look like otherworldly marbles or the metallic shells of alien mollusks. You might be under the impression that space is a vast empty vacuum. Compared to our atmosphere, sure. But in actuality, there's a bubble surrounding our solar system called the zodiacal cloud, and it's full of space dust. And that cosmic dust is constantly raining on the surface of the Earth at the rate of 100 metric tons. Every day,
5: You are never more than a few meters away from one of these particles. They are everywhere. They are on our streets, in our homes, even on our clothes.
1: So micrometeorites are incredibly common. But they're also in a way exceedingly rare.
5: So the rate they fall is around six particles per square meter per year. I don't. Your house looks pretty clean. Right. But... It's <laughs> I can see into your into your house. So
1: you can see one corner. <laughs>
5: <laughs> but but you know you go to any windowsill in the world and you will find a healthy accumulation of dust. And just imagine trying to find that one micrometeorite amongst millions and millions of terrestrial dust particles.
1: That's why scientists who study micrometeorites usually collect them somewhere there isn't much dust or pollution. Antarctica. That was until John Larson showed up.
5: It all began when I got contacted by a chap called John Larson, who told me he had been collecting
1: micrometeorites on his roof. On his roof and in his gutter. It wasn't the first time someone had reached out to Matthew with a claim like this.
5: And they always found huge numbers of them, just impossibly high numbers. And so I told John, no, it wasn't possible. And he just wouldn't give up.
1: John, by the way, was too busy to be interviewed for this story, which might have to do with the fact that he is not your average amateur astronomer. He's a painter, he's an acclaimed jazz guitarist, he even played with Chet Baker.
5: And had a big hit uh, years ago in, in Norway. He's famous in Norway. And in the end, he sent me a photograph, and I thought, you know, that really does look like a micrometeorite. And it was.
1: In the end, Matthew worked with John to verify his micrometeorites and help him refine his methods. And together, they've released a number of scientific papers about how micrometeorites have changed throughout the life of the solar system. And John has put out a book on how to find urban micrometeorites on roofs and rooftop gutters everywhere.
5: There are now hundreds of people around the planet who are collecting micrometeorites on their roofs. So so I... Uh, Um, I feel quite guilty saying I gave John the tools to recognize micrometeorites, since what I really did was try to dissuade him from doing it in the first place.
1: (laughs) But it's time to take our heads out of these zodiacal clouds and start thinking again about what else? Aside from cosmic dust washes down from our rooftops and into the storm drains because of all the species using our gutters, the one we haven't yet talked about are humans
6: you know the engineering and and the work behind our water systems right is is incredible like it's it's magical in many ways
1: this is Dr. fuchsia Hoover a postdoc researcher and urban hydrologist at the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center in Annapolis, Maryland.
6: I think gutters are a fascinating part of that, right?
1: In a natural setting, rain that falls in a forest may soak into the soil and slowly filter through the earth for days, years, millennia even, before popping out as a spring or seeping into the bed of a river.
6: Soil and plants are, are really good as natural filters.
1: But in a concrete waterway, everything is streamlined integrated and fast, and that means there is a lot of stuff being collected as that water flows downstream.
6: So salt, oil or antifreeze, dog poop. Another common thing in cities is fertilizer. There's a lot of nutrient concerns, uh, nitrate, phosphorus, things like um, what, what would be in our medicine cabinet.
1: Just like micrometeorites are invisible unless you're actually looking for them. So aren't a lot of the dissolved pollutants that build up as water washes all over the asphalt and rooftops of a city and into our sewers.
6: They're showing up in the water. And so folks are trying to discover, you know, what are the impacts of that, both on um, ecosystem health, but also on human health.
1: In some cases, stormwater runoff is being deposited directly into larger water bodies. But older cities, especially on the East Coast often rely in part on combined systems that mix stormwater with wastewater.
6: That raindrop is going to, you know, plop on your roof, travel down your gutters. And if it is a connected downspout, meaning that your gutters on your home directly connect to the sewer system underground, it's going to emerge... With, with the same um, waste that's coming out of like your toilets right or or your sinks and all of that is then going to merge with the gutters that we see on the street
1: in cases like these all of that water and sewage flows into a treatment facility before being dumped back into the water cycle but these systems were only built to handle so much flow and because cities are home to more people bigger storms and more surface area than they were when the sewers were designed, These systems have broken down. Let's do a little back-of-the-napkin math. Say you have a half-acre lot and a pretty good bout of rain, one-tenth of an inch. That's 1,358 gallons of water flowing into the drain. Now let's do New York City, which from a quick Google I can see has somewhere around 135,000 acres of impervious surfaces. Let's say it's a big storm, one inch of rain. That adds up to... 3,530,020,000 gallons of water. Combined sewer systems can't handle even a fraction of that much. So instead of sending it to treatment facilities, they dump the overflow directly into places like the Bronx River, the East River, the Hudson, Coney Island Creek, Jamaica Bay.
6: Once the water gets to a certain level, there's there's like a a release. You can kind of think of it like the The extra drainage hole in your bathtub, right, where the water is only allowed to get so high and then it starts running um, back into the drain so that you can't have an overflow event.
1: These are called combined sewer overflows. And in 2016, New York City had 100 days where they dumped raw sewage directly into waterways. It adds up to somewhere around 20 billion gallons of contaminated water every year just in the Big Apple. And this is happening in cities all over the United States, every week, every month, every year.
6: And then it can also cause backups into your homes, particularly if you have basements. And your pipes are are connected into the stormwater system. Now it's not just rainfall that is flooding your your streets or your basements. It's it's also sewage and effluent, and so that's a health hazard risk. And now you're you're being exposed to an unknown number of, um, of potentially dangerous toxins and pollutants.
1: This is obviously a problem during events like Hurricane Katrina in two thousand five. But the harms aren't reserved for occasional disasters. They're regular, they're getting more common, and they're disproportionately affecting marginalized communities that historically have been pushed into low-lying urban areas.
6: There's a there's a really great report from the Center for Neighborhood Technology in Chicago that looked at this when there were a couple really intense, um, really bad thunderstorms that hit the city. And the south side of Chicago, which is predominantly black, Um, had the highest number of claims to FEMA.
1: Throughout so much of modern history, humans have worked to hide, control, or eliminate aspects of the natural world that don't fit neatly with ideas of urban life. Nature is messy. It's unpredictable and smelly, and it needs maintenance. So we do our best to contain it in dedicated spaces like parks, gardens, and zoos. But what if our human-engineered systems could stand to be a little bit messier? What if instead of separating cities from the natural world, we try to integrate them more thoughtfully?
3: One thing is that I think well-designed buildings actually do have nicely designed gutters. So I'm just thinking here in Buffalo, there's a um, house by Frank Lloyd Wright where the gutter is actually beautiful. You know, it's well-designed, totally integrated into the design of the house. It doesn't look like a tacked-on object, right?
1: Joyce Huang is an associate professor of architecture at the University of Buffalo School of Architecture and Planning. Joyce has spent a lot of time designing what is sometimes called habitecture, design that integrates habitat intentionally into the built environment. I called her because I wanted to see if she, as an architect, had ever thought much about gutters.
3: Okay, well, the gutter is actually the place where water is collecting. Why not actually... Make that into something, you know, make part of it, say, become a kind of like vegetated area. So it's kind of almost like a green roof type thing. Maybe even make it into a planter. Maybe it's a gutter slash planter.
1: When we engineer systems designed to flush away our water in the fastest, most efficient ways possible, we miss out on the benefits of the natural systems we're replacing. Systems that filter water or capture carbon or prevent flooding. And that's why there are so many efforts nowadays to reintroduce the color green back into the cityscape.
6: Things like urban forests, street trees, green roofs. There are things called rain gardens or um, bioswales or even tree trenches.
1: All of this is called green infrastructure because it uses biology to slow water down, filter it in place, and let it trickle slowly into our rivers and streams. These are ideas that can and are being implemented at both a systemic and an individual level. But as Dr. Hoover points out, even these solutions can wind up benefiting some over others. New developments, for example, that boast green infrastructure but price communities of color out of the neighborhood, a form of green gentrification.
6: Which is, for me, why I think it's so important to think about stormwater through an environmental justice lens and thinking about the way that environmental racism has made our communities more at risk, particularly as climate change increases the intensity of our thunderstorms. The challenge is, is being able to have systems that, you know, function the way that they should for everybody.
1: Cities are human-built environments, built for human habitation. So it makes sense to view them from that lens. How well are urban systems working for human beings? And if they're not working equally, Who aren't they working for and why? But there are limits to that perspective, too.
3: If we are told that an animal is useful, like, say, a bee pollinates, um, then we suddenly give it value, right? So we give this life value because of its usefulness. Um, And we talk about this in architecture and planning as ecosystem services. So it's like, what can the ecosystem do for us, for humans? And I think if we stick to that as a way of thinking, we're basically in trouble.
1: I like to think of cities as complex, ever-changing organisms in themselves, comprised of organs and tissues and cells, capable of working together, independently, or sometimes at odds. When you look at a city from that perspective, you see that every system is connected. Just like the gutters on our roofs are connected to the gutters on our streets, and the microbiome of our sewers is connected to the health of our communities, rivers, and oceans. Since human beings, in this analogy, are the closest thing a city has to executive function, maybe we need to think more about our roles as landlords of this shared ecosystem more seriously. Yeah, I think we should really see ourselves
2: as, as the, the major ecological force that we are now. Um... Here again is evolutionary biologist Menno Schildthausen. And I'm not saying that's something we should be proud of, but I think it's, it's important to realize that we are, like you say, part of the system. We are one of the species that has become so numerous that it has started to influence the evolution of all other species. So yes, we, we, are, we are changing life on the earth um, uh, and that has both uh, destructive and creative effects.
1: It's as the author and environmentalist Stuart Brand wrote, we are as gods, and might as well get good at it. So, why not start in the gutter? This episode of Outside In was produced by me, Taylor Quimby, with Justine Paradise and Sam Evans-Brown. Erica Janik is our executive producer. You can learn more about the Parisian gutter study, about combined sewer overflows, and about how you can look for micrometeorites where you live at outsideinradio.org. A quick note, aside from the sounds I collected on that rainy February day, the sound effects in this episode were largely made using Foley and digital sources— For example, I was not able to actually capture a nut falling into a gutter. That was the sound of a piece of ginger hitting the tin cover from a set of dominoes. If you would like to chat with other fans of the show, and I think you should, you should join our Facebook group. It's a pretty cool forum for talking about the outdoors or commenting on the latest episode, and we also sometimes run ideas or surveys by the group to help inform the shows that we make. Just search for Outside In on Facebook. You should find us there, and uh, that would be cool. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions and Pottington Bear. And a little snippet there from John Larson's band, Hot Club of Norway. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
4: Had a fella call us. They were uh, digging out a septic tank. And I don't know if they were doing plumbing. But anyway, they had gone to lunch and left the the lid off of the septic tank. And they came back from lunch and there was a, a, a buck in a, in the septic tank. And I kept, I couldn't hardly understand the guy because he was screaming, he was so excited. He said, there's a buck, there's a buck, there's a buck. And I'm thinking, what are you saying? And I had him get him slow down. And he says, it's a buck. He says, a, a male deer with eight points on his head and he's stuck in a septic tank.